I think, uh, I think some churches um, do like an interview style or something like that, like a panel for, for the preaching, so we won't be moving in that direction. But uh, if you have your Bibles, uh, turn with me to the book of 1 Thessalonians. It's on page 986 in the Pew Bible, if you have a copy of God's Word out of the Pew. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, we'll be beginning in verse 17. So as you're turning there, let me just make uh, a shameless plug for the book stall. Uh, we keep talking in this series... We keep talking in the life of our church about this thing called the gospel. And hopefully through the various ministries and particularly through the pulpit of this church, we're making clear what the gospel is, what the gospel isn't. Uh, But, you know, we don't often have time to just give an extended treatment of the gospel in any one setting. And so if you're just wanting to be sharpened in your understanding of the gospel, or maybe you're here, you're not a Christian, you're just exploring these things and, and say, I'd like to know more about what this gospel is Maybe you've been a believer for many years. Maybe you've come to this church for a long time, and you're still like, okay, if someone asks me, what is the gospel? I'm not sure if I'd be able to give a good, clear, succinct answer. This is a great book for you. It's called What is the Gospel by Greg Gilbert. Uh, it'll be in the bookstall. There's a few copies available there. And he just goes through it very clearly, very succinctly. God, man, Christ, response. And uh, so if this would be of help to you, then it's available there. It's, it's at a good price of $6, so it won't break the bank. But uh, that's a plug for what is the gospel. Now, if you would, stand with me for the reading of God's word. And we're going to be reading from 1 Thessalonians 2, 17 through the end of chapter 3. So a longer section today. 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 17. This is what Holy Scripture says. But since we were torn away from you, brothers... For a short time, in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face, because we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. For what is our hope or joy or crown or of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy." Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone. And we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in your faith that no one be moved by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we are destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction, just as it has come to pass and just as you know. For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. But now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us the good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you, for this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. For now we live if you are standing fast in the Lord. For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you, for all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God, as we pray most earnestly night and day that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. 
Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Let's, um, let's pray together. Father, we um, are just mindful of our need for you. And so, God, we just pray that you come and meet us in these moments. Father, we um, often forget about the things of God. We are often prayerless. Uh, we are often dependent upon ourselves rather than depend upon you. We often love things that are not you and things besides you. And so we just really need your help. We need you to forgive us. We need you to sanctify us. We need you to cleanse us. We need you to reorient our minds. We need you to renew our minds so that we would know what is your um, perfect and good and pleasing will. And so God, we just pray that you be with us in these few moments that we have together as we look to your word and as we celebrate the Lord's table, I uh, pray that you would guide and direct our thoughts. I pray that you'd help me as the preacher to communicate with clarity, with persuasion, with passion. And I pray for all of us that you'd help us to believingly receive the things that you have said to us. In your word and through your word preached, And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Let me just begin by setting a little bit of the historical backdrop to our letter in general and to this section in particular. Paul had been in the city of Thessalonica for several weeks, at least. He had visited the local synagogue, remember the local Jewish gathering, on three separate Sabbaths. And he was trying to persuade the people. He was trying to persuade the congregation there, the assembly there, that the Messiah had to suffer and that he had to be raised from the dead. And he was doing this out of what we call the Old Testament scriptures. And he was also trying to prove to the people there, to those who were gathered in the synagogue, that this Jesus of Nazareth, who had recently been crucified in Jerusalem and who had left behind an empty grave, that Jesus is the Christ. Some in the synagogue were persuaded Some of the God-fearers who are Gentiles converted to Judaism were persuaded. And some of the leading women of the synagogue were persuaded, and they became followers of Jesus. And as a result, some of the religious leaders in the synagogue, some of the Jewish leaders there in Thessalonica became jealous They took some wicked men and formed a mob. They set the city in an uproar, and they attacked the house of Jason. Okay? They grabbed Jason. They grabbed some other believers and and brought them before the city authorities, and they charged them in this way. He says, these men have caused trouble everywhere, and now they're here in our city. And this man, Jason, has received them into his home. And worst of all, sir, They act against the decrees of the Lord Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And so the people 
And the city authorities were appalled and upset upon hearing these things. So Jason, the one that they arrested, he must have been a man of uh, wealth. And so he paid a security deposit that would be forfeited should there be another disturbance by these men. So Jason paid the city authorities a deposit that basically said that it would be forfeited if these men returned and caused another ruckus. So the Christians in Thessalonica found Paul, found Silas, and immediately sent them away to Berea, which would have been about 75 kilometers away. And this was at night, which means that there is no send-off service. There is no farewell gathering. There is no goodbye potluck. There is no last-minute, you know, goodbyes. There are no tears shed. They're just whisked away at night. And that's where our text begins. That's the setting for our text. That's the context for our passage. If you're taking notes this morning, then I have just outlined this sermon around sort of four movements of Paul's story that is captured in this text. The first point or the first movement is this. We were torn away from you. We were torn away from you. Paul says that he was torn away from this beloved church that he had planted. And the Greek word here refers to being made an orphan. So Paul and Silas were made as orphans, deprived of the Thessalonians, as orphans are deprived of their parents. Remember, just let, let me just paint the scene again. Paul and Silas had escaped Thessalonica. They traveled down to, or they traveled over to Berea. Timothy would end up joining them in Berea as well, and eventually they ended up in Athens. So they're kind of traveling, I guess it would be uh, west and then south. If, um, and several weeks had gone by. They tried again and again to make plans to return to Thessalonica. They were eager to go and see the Christians there, and they wanted to go and visit this baby church to see how they were doing and to encourage them. Okay? But they couldn't. And so in case there was any in the mind, anything in the mind of the Thessalonians that Paul didn't care, that he wasn't trying to come back, Paul says this. In this letter, he says this. Hey, listen. Uh, remember that guy? Um, he's the archenemy of God. The ringleader of the demons. The antagonist in cosmic history. Yeah, that guy. Well, he hindered us. We tried and we attempted, Thessalonians, but we were shut down. Paul was blocked by Satan as water is blocked, uh, sorry, as water is blocked by a dam in a river. And we're not told exactly how Satan did this hindering. It could be that the bail that Jason paid was such an enormous amount that it would have been imprudent for Paul and Silas to return to the city because it would have caused a ruckus, it would have caused an uproar, and it would have caused Jason to lose this bail money. But what we do know is this, that Satan, both then and now, endeavors to block the advancement of the gospel, and he op opposes the efforts of gospel laborers. And I think it's important for us to acknowledge this. It's important for us to be on guard against this. Paul mentioned this twice in our text, Satan's activity in the life of the Thessalonian church and also in his own life as a gospel 
minister. What this means then, church, is that this ought to make us more prayerful and more dependent upon God because we are not stronger than Satan and his minions, but the one who dwells within us is greater than in he who is the ruler of this age. And so we need to pray and we need to depend upon God. Now, if we rewind just a few weeks prior to Paul, kind of what Paul is describing here, or a few months prior, just imagine Paul, Silas, and Timothy were deeply concerned about the spiritual welfare of this young congregation. Just think about it. Imagine a modern-day missionary going into a country which was either closed or at least hostile to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's say that you send a missionary into China or Indonesia, as we heard last week from Tyler and Michaela, or to Pakistan, where the gospel is not warmly received, to put it mildly. And let's just suppose that this missionary goes into one of these countries and he begins to share the gospel. And dramatically and somewhat unexpectedly, people are converted immediately. But because of the ruckus and disruption that the preaching of the gospel is causing in that city, the missionary loses his visa and he is booted out. The missionary hasn't had much time to train up elders and leaders in the church He hasn't had years to disciple these new believers and ground them in the faith. And he hasn't had an opportunity to walk alongside them in the persecution they were enduring. And so naturally, this missionary would be concerned about these young believers. And it was no different for Paul. He wants to go and find out how they are doing. And he wants to go to encourage them in their faith But for reasons not specifically told to us, he was hindered. Several weeks ago, someone reached out to me, and um, he had a relative by marriage who landed in the Georgetown Hospital. And the person who reached out to me knew that I was a pastor in Georgetown. And um, so he, he was wondering if I could go and visit this woman. And I said, yeah, sure, like, no problem. I can go and do that. Meanwhile, apparently this woman's family... Uh, so not the person that reached out to me, but her sort of immediate family was on our church's website, and they were looking at the staff pictures and the bios, and, and lo and behold, there's this farmer-turned-pastor on the staff page. So they get back to me, and we're like, um, so, Utah, we, we were wondering, <laughs> could you send Terry instead? <laughs> so apparently this woman had a farming background, so they thought they could make, maybe make a connection with Terry more than this... Uh, you know, a random guy from, from Japan, but um, <laughs> so we, we happily sent Terry and he ministered to their family. So we sent Terry, Paul in a very different set of circumstances sent Timothy. And that's the second point here. Uh, Paul says, we sent Timothy to you. If you're taking notes, I realize that I didn't give you the verse references. So the first point, the verse references were uh, 2, 17 through 20. And then for the second point, we sent Timothy to you. The verse references are 3, 1 through 5. We sent Timothy to you, verses three, or chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. And I just want you to notice and, and, and just hear the heart of the Apostle Paul here. Okay, Remember, Paul is under great pressure. He's under great hostility. He's, like, he's booted out of cities, you know, a few in a row. 
Uh, and he's a nomad in a distant land. He, he doesn't have much support. He certainly doesn't have any sort of shelter where he can bunker down. And yet he decides to send one of his close associates, one of his most trusted friends, for the sake of the, for the, sake of the Thessalonians. He says, we were willing to be left behind all alone for you, Thessalonians. Timothy would have probably been in his early 20s, and he had just joined Paul's missionary team just a few months prior. And Timothy is sent with an express purpose of strengthening and encouraging the Thessalonians in their faith. Do you see that in verse 2? We sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker, in the gospel of Christ to establish and exhort you in your faith. They did this in light of the afflictions, right? Both Paul and the Thessalonians experienced opposition for their belief in the gospel, specifically from the Jewish religious authorities, but also from the city authorities, since this belief in King Jesus threatened Rome's claim that Caesar is Lord. And Paul wanted to remind the Thessalonian Christians and the Christians in every age that the avoidance of affliction is an impossible thing for the Christian. The apostolic ban could not, and in some ways desired not, avoid afflictions. In the world, you will have tribulation. John 16, 33. Speaking of Paul, says this, Go, for he's a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Acts 9, 15 through 16. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. 2 Timothy 2, 12. For the Thessalonians... To be under affliction was not an indication of divine abandonment, but of prophetic fulfillment. According to God's redemptive purposes, God's people will always be opposed by false religions, worldly powers, and the demonic realm. Just to provide one brief example that might demonstrate this opposition... And I understand these things get touchy and sensitive, and I don't have time to nuance everything, but just bear with me. There was a recent UK study done by a coalition of LGBTQ plus organizations and churches in Oxford. The study ranked churches in the city from least to most friendly towards LGBTQ plus people. You can probably um, guess as to where this is going. I won't get into too many of the details, but they had five categories, one being the worst, five being the best. But a church like ours would easily receive the worst ranking of one, along with all conservative churches that would take a biblical stance on issues of sexuality. And get this, even if you don't publicly teach on these issues from the pulpit, but if those doing the survey get the sense that your church would hold to traditional sexual ethics or traditional views of marriage, then your church would receive the second worst rating of two. Both church, churches in both categories one and two are deemed a red light, like don't go through. And involvement in both, they say, uh, you're putting yourself at risk of spiritual abuse. 
I have a friend in Calgary who is a pastor whose church just uh, recently voted to leave their denomination over these same kinds of issues. Or perhaps for some of you, it's not organizational or ecclesial, but it's personal. You're mocked and ridiculed for your belief in an ancient book full of myths and legends, they say. You're told that you're narrow-minded, bigoted, and harmful because of your views. You're chauvinistic, you demean women and their rights over their own bodies. You're intolerant of those who think differently than you. And then let's just broaden this out to general trials and suffering just for a moment because I think that it will be instructive for us. Some of you may be out of work due to health challenges or situations with your employer. Others of you may be working, but it is difficult to make ends meet. We live in a fallen world, so there are always health crises and challenges in our midst. Some of you are dealing with a spouse, a father, or a mother with Alzheimer's or dementia. Some of you are dealing with chronic pain, pain that most people in this room would not know about, but it's unexplained and it's ongoing. Some of you struggle with your children. It's across the spectrum, right? Parents of toddlers who throw tantrums and, you know, you're at a loss as to what to do. Parents of teenagers who shut themselves up in their room. Parents of young adults who have gone astray from the, from the faith. And parents of married children who are having severe marital strife. And on and on such a list could go, right? Every one of us have issues in our lives. Every one of us, because we live in a fallen world, either now or soon to be, will experience trials and sufferings of various sorts. But notice with me the priority of Paul in the midst of great affliction for the Thessalonians. They were under immense pressure and much hostility. And Paul's priority was not focused on the expiration of those trials. He was not pleading with God for the Thessalonians to be alleviated from their suffering. No, the concern of Paul was for the Thessalonians to be strengthened in their faith and not be moved by their afflictions. Friend, there's nothing wrong with you wanting your suffering to end. There's nothing wrong with praying to God that he would alleviate or take away your pain. But perhaps God is saying to you, as an implication from this text, that one of the things that God is doing in your heart and life in the midst of your affliction and suffering is to strengthen and mature you in your faith. We'll return to that, but just hold that thought for a moment. You can, so just to switch gears totally, you can imagine a, a man who has been sent to get some tests done. And I realize that as you get older, more of these things come your way, but um, in terms of tests and, and things like this. But he's been having some symptoms, right? So he goes to his doctor and he's sent off to get some tests and it takes several weeks to get those results back. So man's mind begins to race, he begins to Google things, he's a bit of a hypochondriac, and so that few weeks between the tests and the results seem like forever. As the day of the appointment comes, the doctor walks in the room, and the doctor says, Tom, all the tests came back negative. You were relatively healthy for your age, and, the, and some of the th- symptoms that you were having were likely from lack of sleep and overwork. You're free to go. This is a bit like what's happening in the text here. 
Timothy has been sent out by Paul from Athens to Thessalonica, and a round trip from Athens to the province of Macedonia would have taken about three to four weeks. And obviously, Timothy would have spent time with the Thessalonians, at least for a short time. And so we're probably talking about roughly one to two months from the time that Timothy was sent from Paul and from the time that Timothy returned to Paul. As a Paul, like the man in the doctor's office, is eagerly awaiting the news about the health of the Thessalonians. And the whole letter hinges on this one verse in verse 5, or verse 6, sorry. This was the occasion of Paul's writing First Thessalonians. So third point, Paul says, we heard a good report about you. We heard a good report about you, and you see that in verses 6 through 10 of chapter 3. And you can see it in your text, so I, I won't belabor the point, but Timothy gives a glowing report, perhaps even better than Paul could have thought or imagined. Not, not only were they not tempted to stray away from the faith. Not only were they not tempted to compromise the gospel, but they dug their heels in the very best possible way into Christ. They resolved evermore to show genuine love towards one another. And you can imagine Timothy saying to Paul, Paul, they haven't forgotten about you and Silas either. They were a bit disappointed to see only me and not you, but they remember you fondly. And they desperately want to see you. They haven't abandoned the gospel, Paul. They're not just lukewarm or coasting either. They are passionate about Christ. They are leaning into him with full resolve. They are loving one another. And they're gaining a reputation in the Greek provinces for being a megaphone for the gospel. You'd be really proud of them, Paul. And obviously, I'm taking a bit of imaginative license here, but you can imagine tears flowing down the apostle's face. A deep sense of relief coming over every bone in his body. And Paul, Silas, and Timothy, and whoever else was there, breaking out into, great is thy faithfulness. And with even deeper resolve, Paul saying, I must go see my Thessalonian brothers and sisters. Remember that Paul and Silas were forced out of Thessalonica. And if that wasn't enough, the, the Jews from Thessalonica followed them 75 kilometers away in order to boot them out of Berea as well. When Paul arrived in Athens, it says that the, the, the idols of the city provoked his spirit. He preached on the Areopagus and then was mocked by some. He would land in Corinth and preach in the synagogue there, but they opposed and reviled him there as well. Paul was under much distress and affliction during this time. And the thing that brought comfort and strength to his soul, the thing that carried and sustained him on the day, was to hear that the Thessalonians were standing firm and fast in the Lord. I've talked about this man in here before, I believe. His name is John Patton. He was a missionary to the New Hebrides in the 19th century. The New Hebrides is modern-day Vanuatu. And the people of the New Hebrides were infamous because they were a cannibalistic people. It was a dark and evil society. One missionary called them a dead sea of pollution. 
They practice infanticide. There was intertribal war, and they were a very religious people. They made idols of almost everything, of trees, rocks, streams, insects, de departed spirits, and even relics like hair and fingernails. Patton and two other men were seeking to move on to the island of Tana. And at the time, war was taking place on the island of Tana. Muskets were being fired. Men with faces painted red, black, white, and blue were rushing all around. In fact, six men had been killed less than a mile away from where Patton would build his new home. Patton brought over his wife, who was pregnant with their first son, Tatana. And within six months, his wife and his newborn son would pass from pneumonia and malaria. Others would urge him to leave for a time of rest, but Patton refused, resolved to stay on the island of Tana. He himself would endure malaria more than a dozen times. And some of the native people were converted to Christianity, and some of them, too, were martyred by their own countrymen. This is Patton's life and story. Other missionaries would come, but some of them would be killed also. Patton would sleep with his clothes on so that he was ready to run at a moment's notice. And eventually, the opposition and the wickedness was insurmountable, and so Patton felt that he needed to leave. So he was on the run, escaping overland, and there was a friendly chief who hid Patton up a large tree. The biographer kind of quotes and says, when God lays men on their backs, they look up to heaven. Talking about Patton being up in the tree. So this is, what, this is what Patton says, kind of reflecting back on those hours in the tree. He's looking up to heaven, even as there are those who are attacking him below, or looking for him and hunting for him. The hours I spent there live all before me as if it were yesterday. I heard the frequent firing of muskets and the yells of the savages, yet I sat there among the branches as safe in the arms of Jesus. Never in all my sorrows did my Lord draw nearer to me and speak more soothingly in my soul than when the moonlight flickered amongst the chestnut leaves and the night air played on my throbbing brow as I told all my heart to Jesus. Alone, yet not alone. If it be to glorify my God, I will not grudge to spend many nights alone in such a tree, to feel again my Savior's spiritual presence, to enjoy his consoling fellowship. If thus thrown back upon your own soul alone, all alone, in the midnight, in the bush, in the very embrace of death itself, have you a friend that will not fail you then? The one thing that the Tannese people could not touch was Patton's relationship with the Lord Jesus. The one thing that the muskets could not pierce was Patton's faith. And so it was for the Thessalonians. Amidst all the afflictions and hostility they endured, the one thing that Satan could not touch was the, the, the power that sustained the Thessalonians was divinely given faith. And therefore, the faithfulness of their faith was Paul's chief concern. Their standing fast in the Lord was life to Paul. And let me say this to you, Maple Avenue Baptist Church. 
Though I was not the missionary that brought the gospel to you as Paul was for the Thessalonians, this church was planted 70 years ago, and though I was not torn away from you and ushered off to Athens, though I was thinking that that could be nice in terms of a vacation, But as one of the pastors of MABC, this is my chief concern. Even as the pressures of this culture mount up, even as the heat of society increases to our disadvantage, even as we face affliction and persecution, and even as we face personal trials and individual sufferings, the chief concern that I have is that you would remain steadfast in the Lord. That you would not be moved in your faith. That you are doing, and that we are doing all within our power to strengthen and encourage you in your faith and trust in the Lord Jesus. And I think, I think I speak on behalf of the pastors and the elders of this church, but Paul says, and let me personalize it to you, for now we live, Maple Avenue Baptist Church, if you are standing fast in the Lord. I'll be brief with my fourth point. Paul ends this section of the letter with a prayer. Paul says, we continue to pray for you. Chapter 3, verses 11 through 13. This is instructive for us. Paul, Paul wants to get to Thessalonica. And so he doesn't just depend upon his sort of I can do it sort of attitude and his resolve and logistical planning in order to get this done. He prays to God about logistical planning. And Paul has just heard a glowing report about the Thessalonians. An incredible report of how they are doing spiritually, how they are doing in terms of church life. And yet Paul continues to pray for their maturation and growth. And friends, even as we work our way through this epistle... And as we focus on the gospel and its work in our lives as a church, and even as we focus on the priority of faith, hope, and love in our midst, and even as we focus on thanksgiving to God for his work in our congregation, and even as we focus on the primacy of maintaining faith, even in the midst of afflictions, let it be said that we must also focus on the vital nature of prayer in this church. If we are to remain faithful, if we are to remain steadfast in the Lord, and this is a danger for us because I think things are going relatively well in our congregation. People are growing, people are coming, but it would be easy for us to coast. It would be easy for us to conclude that this is in our own power or that we, can, that we have things under our own control and not depend upon God Almighty. If we are to have love for one another, if we are to be a holy people, then we must, friends, be a people of prayer. Let's pray then for ever-expanding and deepening love for other people. And then let us pray for internal holiness that is motivated by the second coming of the Lord Jesus. And friends, let us not kid ourselves We cannot, in our own strength, generate those things. A deep love for a bunch of people with whom we have nothing in common except our common faith in the Lord Jesus. 
and even beyond the walls of this church to, to those within Georgetown and beyond who, generally speaking, oppose our message and want us to shut our mouths. For us to have love for them cannot come from within. And for us to have a desire for holiness that is not just about good behavior and looking good in the public eye, but a real, genuine holiness that begins at the level of the heart internally within us. We can't generate that. We have to depend upon God for that, and therefore we must be a people of prayer. Paul says, we were torn away from you. We sent Timothy to you. We heard a good report about you. And we continue to pray for you. Let us pray as we prepare our hearts for the Lord's table. Father, thank you for this morning that we've had in your word. God, I just pray that you'd use the sounding forth of your word to do its saving and sanctifying, keeping, comforting work in our hearts and in our lives. Thank you for loving us first, even as it's demonstrated at this communion table. Help us, O oh Lord, not, to pay, not, not in, a, in a sense of paying it back or earning your favor or your grace, but just out of gratitude. Help us to live our lives in love to you. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.